Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show. We are talking all about the Jen Shaw of it all. And we have seen on social media that Jen Shaw did not go to the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, you know, recording for the reunion, which is a fairly big deal. She said it was because she couldn't talk about her case. We're going to talk about everything we know today. We're just going to mention it all because we have the transcript from her taking the plea. So we're going to go through what she said when she pled. Yeah, the transcript from her plea. Then we're going to go through this forfeiture order that lists Jen Shaw's property. Some of it real, some of it counterfeit, which is interesting. And then we're going to go through the key points of Jen Shaw's sentencing memo. So there's a lot going on today. Her attorneys are asking for three years federal prison. The government won't file their response until December 23rd. As you know, I will be on vacation, so we will talk about that in the new year. And we need to just get into this episode because there is so much to cover. I can't believe it. Two more Emily shows left in 2022. Y'all buckle up. We still have a lot to talk about. We still have a lot to talk about. Hey there. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. I'm a former prosecutor and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. All right. I did say we were going to get right into it, but I have to spend a minute saying a huge thank you to all the law nerds. The Emily Show podcast has reached over, well, over now, 2 million total downloads, which though the numbers are super different from YouTube, it is a huge deal for the podcast. It's been so incredible to see this podcast grow and I appreciate all of you. So thank you to everyone who left a review, who shared it on your favorite podcasting app. I'll be sharing some of the Spotify, you know, unwrapped podcasting stuff over on social so you can see how much this podcast has grown as really a community of law nerds around the world. It has absolutely blown me away. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for your support and thank you for supporting The Emily Show. I know a lot of you watch on YouTube, but there are so many of you that listen to it in audio, including my mother. Hi, mom. So with that, we have 2 million downloads. It's unbelievable. I never would have thought. We're over 175 episodes of The Emily Show and big things coming for 2023. So let's, Jen Shaw of it all, she's getting sentenced right at the beginning of the new year, January 6th in New York. We will see what the judge decides to sentence her to, but we're gonna take a little retrospective to what she pled to, which includes this conspiracy to commit wire fraud and the conspiracy to commit money laundering. But aside from the charges, what did she say when she pled? And that's where the transcript comes in. I have not seen anyone cover this. I've seen the media reporting it the day that she pled uh, back in July, but I haven't seen anyone cover in detail the transcript and that's what we're going to do right now. So Jen Shaw is in court with her attorney um, and or two attorneys and then with all of the AUSAs in front of Judge Sidney Stein, who goes through and gives an entire rundown of what it means to take a plea, what it means to change your plea and 
and breaking down all of the legal side of it. Nobody's promised you anything. Nobody has forced you to take this plea. You're entering it of sound judgment. Um, and the court goes through these disclosures in every single plea deal. So the court says, how old are you, ma'am? Jen Shaw says, 48 years old. How far did you go in school? She says, two years in college. The court, are you able to read, write, speak, and understand English? Yes, Your Honor. Just to make sure, again, the court always asks to make sure that you understand what you are doing. These are knowing waivers. Are you, um, she says, yes, Your Honor. The court then asks, are you now or have you recently been under the care of a doctor or psychiatrist? Jen Shaw says no, um, which was surprising to me because if you're getting ready to plea, I think being under the care of a psychiatrist is a great idea. But, you know, you never know what people choose to do. And that might have been under psychology and not psychiatry. So who knows? But she said no. It asked if you had ever been uh, treated or hospitalized for any mental illness or type of addiction, including drug or alcohol addiction. Jen Shaw said yes. The court said when was that? Jen Shaw indicated two years ago. The court asked, was it inpatient? She said, no, Your Honor. The court said, what was it for? And she said it was for alcohol and depression. But the thing that's always interesting to me is when you say, or when the court asks, have you been treated for this? Yes, two years ago. Um, and there's a depression bit to it. It's interesting to me that she said she's not recently under the care of a psychiatrist. Again, um, care is care. And if you need care, and can get care, I highly recommend. Look, therapy is so helpful. It's not available to enough. I could talk about that forever, but it is so helpful um, if it's accessible to you and if you can make it accessible to you. So the court says thank you and asked, but you were hospitalized for it. And Jen Shaw answered no. The court asked if she had been on any drugs, medication, pills, or alcohol within the last 24 hours. And Jen Shaw indicates that she had taken prescription pills um, with no other context to that. So it's just taken prescriptions. Any prescriptions could count. And then the judge asks, does that affect your mental cognition? And she says, no. Asks if she's of clear mind. She says, yes. If she's feeling okay, she says, yes. She has the attorneys. The attorneys have talked to her and goes through all of these waivers. The court then says, now, if I accept your guilty plea this morning, you will be interviewed by the probation department. The defense attorneys can be there if they so wish. It is important that you give the probation department accurate and complete and truthful information. Do you understand that? And she says, yes, Your Honor. The court says, because I'm going to use that report in determining what an appropriate sentence is for you, as I just told you, your attorney will be able to object to any findings of fact in the pre-sentence report. The government will have the same opportunity. If there are objections, I will then adjudicate the objections. So the judge means they will rule on the objections. It is, it, so it is important that you give them accurate information. It is a quite thorough report. Your sentencing is going to be put off for a few months in order, uh, in part for that probation department to prepare the report and also for your attorneys to submit a sentencing submission and for the government to do so too. And because this happened in July and here we are in December, we'll cover that today. Only Jen Shaw's part, not the government's part. The court says, but the point is here, when they interview you, be truthful with them. Do you understand that? And Jen Shaw says, yes, your honor. The court says, 
then on the basis of that probation department pre-sentence report and my reading of the law and the submissions of the party, I will be able to determine what the relevant guideline range is. And that's the guidelines uh, for the sentencing. So how how many months end-to-end is it um, as a appropriate sentence, given all the factors that we've talked about in so many of these federal cases? The court then lets Jen Shaw know, quote, when you're sentenced to prison, the system of parole that used to exist in the federal criminal justice system has been abolished so that when I sentence you to prison, ma'am, you are going to serve the entire term in prison. There is a system whereby you can be released a bit earlier on good time credits if you follow all the rules and regulations of the correctional facility where you're located, but you will not be released any earlier on parole. Do you understand that? And Jen answers, yes, your honor. They then go on to give um, some more information. And the judge says, I'm the one who is going to sentence you, Ms. Shaw, and I don't know what your sentence is going to be. I just simply don't know enough about you, about your upbringing, about your financial situation, your educational background, your business background, any criminal history you may have. I know essentially nothing about that. So I don't know what your sentencing is going to be. And if I don't know what your sentencing is going to be, and I'm the one sentencing you, nobody can know what your sentence is going to be. Do you understand that? Telling Jen Shaw, look, even if your attorneys or the or the government prosecutors estimate what your sentences may be, that might not be accurate because I don't even know that I'm going to or what I'm going to sentence you to. And then they talk a little bit about the letter from the government and that the government has said they would not ask for anything outside of the range. And the court says now in the plea agreement, the parties have stipulated that the appropriate guideline range is between 135 to 168 months imprisonment. In in other words, the bottom of the guideline calls for a sentence of more than 11 years, and the top of the guidelines calls for a sentence of 14 years. Do you understand that? And Jen Shaw responds, yes, Your Honor. So he's telling her again, look, these are the ranges that they are determining and you are agreeing are appropriate. You've agreed the bottom level of appropriateness is 11 years and the top is 14 years and that that is for the judge to determine later. Then the court asks, why don't you tell me now what you did? Read slowly when people are nervous and they read, they tend to read rather quickly and I need the reporter to be able to take it down. I need to be able to process what you're telling me. And this is Jen Shaw's factual basis plea. She is telling the court what she did. She and her attorneys would have written this in advance. They would have provided that to the government in the plea deal to make sure that what she is detailing to the court accurately reflects the information that they need and what she did as a part of this crime. And Jen Shaw says, yes, Your Honor, and then begins to explain, quote, from 2012 to March 2021 in the Southern District of New York and elsewhere, I agreed with others to commit wire fraud. I did this by knowingly providing customer names to people who were marketing business services that had little or no value. However, I knew the purchasers of these services were misled about the value, and that's why they bought the services. We used interstate telephones and emails to market and sell these services. Furthermore, while doing this, I knew many of the purchasers of the services were over the age of 55. 
I knew this was wrong. I knew many people were harmed, and I am so sorry. The court said then, quote, were there more than 20 people over the age of 55? I don't know what the statutory amount is. I think 20, I believe. I'm asking the defendant. Uh, The attorney says, Your Honor, I believe the statute requires more than 10. The court says more than 10. And then the defense attorney says, Yes, Your Honor, we've done enough diligence to be able to say for sure that there were more than 10. The court said, but I would like to hear that from the client. Jen Shaw then says, yes, Your Honor, more than 10. The court says, quote, now you said something. This is why they bought whatever it is they bought. What are you referring to? What was the reason they bought what they were buying? And Jen Shaw said, the misrepresentations of the product is why they purchased the service. The court says, what were the misrepresentations? And Jen Shaw says, regarding the value of the product or service. (laughs) So still, there's a little bit of business, 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 right? Of Jen Shaw being like, I do business. There's an algorithm and I do lead generation and still not quite answering the question. And the court said, Again, what were the misrepresentations regarding the value of the service? And Jen Shaw said that it had little to no value. And the just around and around. And the court said, in other words, the representations were that it had value, or it was mis or was it a misrepresentation because it had little or no value? Is that what you're telling me? And Jen Shaw said, Yes, that's correct, Your Honor. The court said, Government, anything else you're seeking on allocution, which is what they call a factual basis plea. And the government said, no, Your Honor, thank you. The court said, Ms. Shaw, when you did these acts, did you know that what you were doing was wrong and illegal? Let me read that again. The court said, Ms. Shaw, when you did these acts, did you know what you were doing was wrong and illegal? And Jen Shaw's answer was, yes, Your Honor. The court then asked the government, what evidence does the government have against the defendant? And this is the attorney, the U.S. attorney answering, Your Honor, were the defendant to proceed to trial, the government anticipates that the evidence would show that between approximately 2012 and 2016, the defendant primarily acted as a lead broker responsible for selling victim information to other sales floors that she shared in the profits that these sales floors earned when they lied to victims and that she directed sales floor as to which so-called fulfillment services they should use, which upsell floors they should use, and how the sales would be conducted. During this time period, the government would introduce evidence that the defendant was made aware of several Federal Trade Commission lawsuits brought against the sales floors and that the defendant worked for or worked with and that alleged that these floors were engaged in deceptive practices. So though it's awkwardly worded because I'm not the one arguing this in court, Jen Shaw knew of the FTC actions, which we've talked about before. Um, Stuart Smith actually pled to a perjury count associated with one of these FTC actions. Jen Shaw knew of the FTC actions and what the evidence showed or what the government alleged in their in their filings throughout this case was that after the FTC actions about these sales floors and these telemarketing activities, that Jen Shaw and Stuart Smith moved the businesses around, started using Telegram instead of text messages where they could um, more easily have messages concealed and things like that. 
The AUSA goes on to say the government would further show that between 2017 and 2021, in addition to acting as a lead broker, the defendant owned and operated a Manhattan-based sales floor called Mastery Pro Group. So Jen Shaw owned the Mastery Pro Group sales floor, not just giving leads to a sales floor, but engaging more deeply in owning her own sales floor, something that's not in her sentencing memo. The court then says Mastery Pro Group. The AUSA says, yes, Your Honor, and goes on to say, in that role, the defendant oversaw the sales floor herself, handled victim complaints and chargebacks, and supervised salespeople who directly lied to victims of the scheme. She was aware the government would show through witness testimony, electronic communications, screenshots, and her phone and other evidence that the salespeople that worked for her lied to victims about their ability to make money in their home-based business. The value of these products that her business was selling to the victims and other misrepresentations. It goes on to say while the defendant was operating Mastery Pro Group, the government anticipates the evidence at trial would show that the defendant was aware that other individuals engaged in similar conduct, that is, operating the BizOp, BizOp, the business operation sales floor, were criminally charged in this district. So she knew others were charged and get going, and others were charged before she started filming Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Yup, yup. She didn't just know. This is why they said she was at the point of the spear. She was one of the most culpable because she owned one of these sales floors. This is very different than what's in her sentencing submission from her attorneys. They go on to say that the evidence, including electronic communications, would show that the defendant communicated with her co-conspirators about the fact of these criminal charges and that she and her co-conspirators took steps to conceal the operation of Mastery Pro Group and the financial records associated with it. She knew when the others went down, and the government says that there were electronic communications about that. This happened before she started filming. That's wild to me. So I wonder if the behavior we saw season one is because she knew that she was locked into a TV show and this was coming. I thought it was important to go over this transcript of what the government said and what Jen Shaw pled to before we get to her sentencing submission. The government goes on to say she did this and the government would show this through evidence reflecting that the defendant did not put her name on bank accounts associated with the business. And instead, the bank accounts were in the names of her co-conspirators or relatives. They go on to say the financial records would further show that the defendant only received payment from Mastery Pro Group in cash through the use of a company credit card and through payments made by the company for a New York City apartment that she lived in and or other goods. They go on to say the evidence would show and this would come in through cooperator testimony, which means one of the other defendants, possibly Stuart Smith, possibly someone else, but this would come in from testimony of someone who worked in this scheme and through electronic communications taken from electronic devices. The evidence would further show that the defendant used encrypted applications to communicate with co-conspirators and that she and her co-conspirators took steps to move the operation of certain aspects of the scheme offshore to Kosovo. This isn't a whoopsie doodle. And that she and co-conspirators incorporated several businesses in Wyoming to conceal the ownership of those businesses because Wyoming lets you do things a bit more anonymously. They go on to say, finally, the government, ex uh, the government expects 
that the evidence at trial would show, and this would occur through testimony from a co-conspirator and other records, that the defendant directed a co-conspirator to lie under oath in a deposition taken by the FTC in an effort to conceal her role in the scheme and that she provided that co-conspirator with written talking points that he should follow during his deposition. That is the perjury charge that Stuart Smith pled to. That's what that is. She directed her co-conspirator to lie to conceal her involvement. And this was back in 2016, to lie to conceal her involvement and provided written talking points to that co-conspirator who I believe to be Stuart Smith well before she ever started filming for television. The government goes on to say, as I said, Your Honor, this evidence would include financial records, including bank records, showing cash withdrawals from the Mastery Pro Group bank accounts matched to large structured cash deposits in the defendant's bank accounts, her text messages, her emails, screenshots of her communications on her phones, communications with co-conspirators, including about the victims. The government anticipates that there are thousands of victims of this scheme. Several of those victims would testify at trial about the lies they were told by Mastery Pro Group salespeople acting at Ms. Shaw's direction. The government would also offer other evidence, including recordings made by co-conspirators. I'm sorry, somebody wore a wire. The government would also offer other evidence, including recordings made by co-conspirators about the scheme lease documents from Mastery Pro Group reflecting the defendant's name, and finally, tax returns showing that she intentionally underreported her crime proceedings by hundreds of thousands of dollars over several years in an effort to conceal her scheme. You know who's going to be triggered by that real big time? You know who's going to be triggered? The IRS is going to be super triggered whenever they see, oh, there's tax returns showing intentional underreporting. The IRS is like, excuse me, excuse me. Excuse me, you're underreporting income. That means we didn't get what's ours. We would like it now. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the IRS is probably not done here. The court then says, now, Ms. Fletcher, this is the AUSA, you use the term biz ops there, which I take it is the shorthand for business opportunities. Is that what Mastery Pro Group was foisting on the public, alleged business opportunities? The AUSA says, yes, that's right, Your Honor. As Your Honor knows from having presided over this case, there are a series of different business opportunity products that are sold to customers in this space. The first service is a so-called coaching service. So the defendant primarily provided leads to coaching floors that would sell coaching to these victims. After the individuals had been sold coaching, they would pass along to the tax floor that would sell them business entity setup or another sort of what are referred to as tax products. Finally, if the victim had purchased coaching and tax products, they would be passed along to Mastery Pro Group and sold a custom-designed website to operate their online business and so-called marketing products to advertise their business to the public. So you got through three levels of sales, coaching, then tax products, and then into the custom website, et cetera. The court says, I take it the position of the government is that there was no substance to the coaching, tax products, or website. The AUSA says, that's right, Your Honor. Were this case to go to trial, the government anticipates that individuals who operated coaching floors would say that the purpose of the coaching sale was to convince the coaching buyer that he or she needed to buy the coaching, the tax prep products, and the marketing products. 
that would later be sold to the customers by sales floors like the defendants. And then the court says, thank you, Ms. Shaw. How do you now plead to the charge in count one of the indictment, S-419-CR 833, guilty or not guilty? And Ms. Shaw says, guilty. The court, are you pleading guilty, Ms. Shaw, because you are guilty? The defendant, Ms. Shaw, yes, your honor. The court, are you pleading guilty voluntarily and of your own free will? The defendant, Ms. Shaw, yes, your honor. The court says to Jen Shaw's attorney, do you wish any further questions on the allocution? The defense attorney says no. The government, anything further? No. The court says, I am now going to sign the consent preliminary order of forfeiture in the sum of $6.5 million. I have done that. So that is $6.5 million that is being forfeited of Jen's property. And we're going to talk about the forfeitures. So the court signs the forfeiture in the sum of $6.5 million. The court accepts the plea, is knowing and voluntary. Then they talk about dates. We know this sentencing got pushed multiple times. So it's going to be on January 6th. And that is the end of that. Now we need to get to the forfeiture. But first, we need to take a moment for our show's sponsor. Thank you to today's sponsor, Quip. I feel like I am racing through all of the topics in today's Emily show. But you know what you don't want to race through? That's right, your dental care. And Quip makes it easy because their smart electric toothbrush actually makes it easy to keep track of how long you've been brushing. And their app lets you gamify the experience and earn points and rewards for brushing two minutes at a time, twice a day. It makes it so easy to keep track, especially if you're like me and you might be doing other things while you're brushing your teeth and maybe not specifically paying attention like I should. So why not make it easy on yourself? Not only will they send you the brush heads that you need when it's time to replace them on auto refill so you can set it and forget it, you can track your time in your app, and the toothbrushes are delightful. What a great variety of different colors, different handles, and they're easy enough for your kids to use. If you're ready to set a great habit for the new year, why don't you go check out Quip? Their smart electric toothbrushes are starting at just $25. If you go to getquip.com slash Emily show right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash Emily show spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Emily show. Quip, the good habits company. Now, let's get back to the episode. So now we get to talk about forfeitures. Emily, what are forfeitures? The forfeitures is a fancy way of saying the government is going to take your shit. So if they could trace your shit to crime proceeds, they're going to take it. If they can't trace shit to crime proceeds, they're going to substitute shit in to take from crime proceeds. Did you buy a car? They take your car. Did they buy, did you buy a bag? They take the bag. Did you buy a house? They'll take your house. The government is going to come and forfeit your stuff. It is one of the reasons I believe the feds use these fraud crimes so often because it gives them a very good way to yeet your shit and then resell it to bring the money back in in a form of restitution to, to disengorge you of your crime profits. The government is here to take your stuff. And then you still have to figure out the tax consequences on your own leader. 
So this is the government's second consent preliminary order of forfeiture as to specific property. Hey, if anyone else has an interest in this property, speak now or forever hold your peace. Because if we're selling the car and somebody else comes in and is like, yo, I paid for half of that. It's too late. This is going to get published. If you own some of this stuff, they're going to take it. So this is as to specific property. So the government listed out. This was filed December 15th, 2022. You might have seen a thing or two about it online. People had some conversations because all the properties listed, we're going to go through it too. Whereas on or about March 30th, 2021, Jen Shaw and another was charged in a two-count superseding indictment with conspiracy to commit wire fraud in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1349 and conspiracy to commit money laundering. She again only pled to count one. The indictment included a forfeiture allegation as to count one. She pled to count one. And pursuant to Title 18 U.S.C. 982A8, allows the U.S. to forfeit any and all real or personal property used or intended to be used to commit, to facilitate, or to promote the commission of the offense charged in count one of the indictment, or and any and all real property constituting, derived from, or traceable to the gross proceeds the defendant obtained directly or indirectly as a result of the offense, including but not limited to a sum of money in U.S. currency representing the amount of proceeds traceable. Whereas on March 30th, pursuant to a search warrant, the government seized the following property at defendant's residence. Are we going to go through the property? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Um, let's get into it. I'm going to pronounce some of these things wrong. Why? Because my bougie has limits and I don't know everything. One, Yves Saint Laurent Nikki Medium Gold Leather Shoulder Bag with Gold Chain Strap and Hardware Style Number 498894 Made in Italy. One Versace Palazzo Empire Green Leather Tote Bag with Signature Medusa Motif on Flap and Removable Leather Strap Serial Number 212923433784 Made in Italy. One Gucci Arelli Python Handle Bag with gold hardware and silver stud style number 550130, Cruise 2019 collection, made in Italy. Whose job was it to sit down and do this? Does it, did a law clerk get to do this? Who got to, who got to go through the purses? I would do this. I, I volunteer. I want to go through the purses. Who, whose job is this? This is not the trial attorney doing this, I imagine. Someone tell me, if this is your job, just, you can email me anonymously. If you get to do this as part of your job, this feels like law clerk work for me, but if this is part of your work where you get to go through all the bags and figure out where they're from, I need I need to talk to you because this seems delicious. This seems absolutely delicious to go through all the bags. It just seems fun. This would be fun. I would want to do this. I like going through bank accounts too. It's why I liked fraud cases. All the paper, all the nosiness, um, generally people aren't deceased. So anyway, okay, let's keep going. We're on to the Vuitton. Emily's in her wheelhouse. One Louis Vuitton patent monogram, infrarouge twist red patent leather shoulder bag with silver chain shoulder strap, serial number SR5116. Wait, why didn't you say where it was made? Was it made in France or Italy or Spain? I have questions. One Louis Vuitton kimono cherry calfskin and monogram canvas tote with gold hardware style number DU4175 made in France. One Louis Vuitton monogram Victicor canvas and leather handbag with gold strap and hardware style number CA3176 made in Spain. Back to Versace. Why didn't we list them by designer? 
keep the Versace with the Versace and the Vuittons all in a row. I would have organized this differently. One Versace Palazzo Empire black leather tote bag with signature Medusa motif on flap. Removable leather strap, gold hardware serial number. Oh, don't make me do this. Emily, you're choosing to do this. It's your podcast. You're right. You're right. You're you're right. 382-587-175-335. Made in Italy. One Louis Vuitton checkered calfskin twist. M- I love the twist style bags. Emily, focus. I love them anyway. Twist MM with double gold chain shoulder straps, gold hardware style number FO3177, 2017, made in Italy. One Louis Vuitton monogram reverse column canvas and leather clutch with gold and silver hardware, 2017, made in France. One Louis Vuitton on my side MM. I like the on my side. It's a great new style. I do. Um, MM canvas and leather tote with detachable leather shoulder strap and gold hardware, style number M53824. One Vuitton Melitouge. I have no idea. GO 14 PM quilted red leather bag with detachable silver chain strap, silver hardware made in Italy. One Louis Vuitton. Look, put all the Louis together. Let me hear it. It's the brand I'm most familiar with. One Louis Vuitton limited edition Gromet Twist MM black leather bag with silver chain strap, silver and gold hardware style FL2146 made in Italy. One Louis Vuitton studded Louise black calfskin clutch with silver and gold hardware made in Italy. Emily, are you going to go through all of these? Yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, we're on to Louboutin. One Christian Louboutin uh, Kabata East-West leather leopard print tote with gold hardware. We're still on the purses. We're still on the purses. One Valentino candy stud Napa striped medium top handle bag with gold studs and hardware. One Vuitton reversible monogram cashmere poncho vest with rabbit fur collar and lambskin trim. Label lacking. One Montclair Flumeur. I have no idea what the rest of these words are. Gray down jacket with blue frost fox fur trim with a serial number made in Armenia. One Prada black dyed sheep fur and brown leather jacket. Serial number lots. Size. Don't put, look. These are tiny, tiny sizes, but oh my God, I would die. Oh my God, I would die in the forfeiture. It's like, here are the size of all of your clothes. Stop it. Stop. That should be, tell people that. Tell people that when they forfeit your clothes, they're going to list the sizes of all of them. Some people will be horrified. Some people won't. I, horrified. I would be horrified. Would you be horrified? Would you be horrified? I would be. We're seeing the Utah residents come out with all, with all of the items we are now in well into the winter wear. Did we talk about the Prada? We did. Um, Lanvin, is that how you pronounce that? Levin, Levin. I have no idea. Fox mink and leather belted stole with a style size, whatever, made in France. One Meredith. Oh no, not the Meredith Marks jewelry. Wait, 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 wait. The Meredith Marks jewelry. This is her castmate. Were these given to her by Meredith Marks? Did she buy them? Wait, are these not crime proceeds? Can you give them back to Meredith Marks if Meredith Marks gifted them and let Meredith Marks auction them off for charity? Government, consider it. Just consider it. Just consider it. One Meredith Marks Patricia ring, 14 yellow gold, set with one pear-shaped golden moonstone, weighing approximately 16 carats. 34 round brilliant diamonds weighing approximately 0.5 carats, 29 round brilliant yellow diamonds weighing 0.4 carats, 
Size 6.5 stamp, Meredith Marks, 14K, 713, and DO76. One Meredith Marks ring, 14 karat yellow gold, set with one cushion cut olive quartz, weighing approximately 24 carats. What? What? And 48 round, brilliant diamonds, weighing approximately 0.65 carats. That sounds cool. (laughs) Size 7 stamp, Meredith Marks, 14K, uh, 2498 and D082. One David Yerman bracelet, 18 karat yellow gold, sterling silver with diamond pave weighing apparently 0.87 carats, stamped with all the things. Oh, there's lots of David Yerman bracelets. Okay, I'm not going to read all of these. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five more David Yerman bracelets of varying kinds in gold with diamonds. One Gucci spike necklace, gold tone. Featuring faux pearls. I love that they had to make it clear that these were faux pearls set with crystal pave stamped Gucci. One Vuitton things in French (laughs) petal necklace bracelet set gold tone with the style listed and the stamping. One Louis Vuitton idol blossom twist bracelet. One Louis Vuitton ID curb chain link bracelet and necklace set. And then we're into the tea. Are you ready for the tea? Are you ready? Are you ready? One counterfeit Louis Vuitton monogram canvas and leather leather tote. One counterfeit Louis Vuitton Felici pouch monogram canvas small handbag with removable gold chain strap and hardware. One counterfeit Chanel red quilted shoulder bag. Did we still see any real Chanel bags? I don't think we did. I don't. I don't think we did. Not that I'm passing a judgment on not owning a Chanel bag. Here's the thing. I don't care what kind of bag you own. I am not passing judgment. But when you are um, exhibiting a certain lifestyle, it's interesting to then have the feds come out with all the tea and be like, oh, here's what was real. And let us tell you what is counterfeit, um, which technically is not legal. I don't think there were any of the real Chanel bags. Again, no shade unless you're promoting an image on television. But anyway, one, uh, where were we? Where were we with the counterfeit Chanel's? One counterfeit Chanel red quilted shoulder bag, one counterfeit Chanel red quilted wallet, one counterfeit Chanel faux pearl embellished black canvas shoulder bag, one counterfeit Chanel gold quilted shoulder bag, one counterfeit Fendi white quilted bag, one counterfeit Bogota Venta, I don't know if I pronounced that right. Bogota Vienta. Olive green clunch. One counterfeit Balenciaga. Not the Balenciaga. <laughs> just, just feds, just throw that one away. Just throw it away. Just, just yeet the counterfeit Balenciaga immediately. One counterfeit Chanel faux snakeskin shoulder bag. One counterfeit Chanel lambskin leather bag. One counterfeit Chanel pair of black quilted side pack bags. What does that even mean? One counterfeit Chanel black leather tote with chain bag. One counterfeit Hermes black leather top handle bag with gold hardware. One counterfeit Chanel black quilted shoulder bag with silver chain. One counterfeit Chanel black quilted shoulder bag. One counterfeit Chanel black quilted shoulder bag with silver chain strap. Oh, by the way, they keep listing the labels for all of the Chanel's labeled made in China. One counterfeit Louis Vuitton ex-Christian Louboutin calf hair shopping bag. Was there ever a Vuitton Louboutin Crossover? What? I don't know. One counterfeit Louis Vuitton monogram canvas wallet. One counterfeit Louis Vuitton monogram canvas and leather wallet. One counterfeit Vuitton monogram canvas leather fanny pack. 
with gold hardware, one counterfeit Chanel brown quilted shoulder bag with gold chain strap and hardware made in China, one counterfeit Chanel tan quilted handbag with silver strap, one counterfeit Gucci pink quilted belt bag, one counterfeit Chanel PVC handbag with sand inside. What is like, was there accidentally sand inside or is that the style? I have, I have questions. That's, that's, I have questions. Was the sand an accident or did it matter? One counterfeit Louis Vuitton monogram reverse petite boutique canvas leather bag, one counterfeit Louis Vuitton monogram canvas leather set with three pouches with canvas strap and gold hardware, one counterfeit Chanel dark tan shoulder bag with removable shoulder strap made in China, one counterfeit Valentino rock stud spike white leather shoulder bag, one counterfeit Jimmy Choo red leather top handle bag. We're not done yet. One counterfeit Louis Vuitton monogram canvas and leather tote with removable strap and zipper pouch. One counterfeit Chanel large quilted shoulder bag with silver chain strap hardware marked Pharrell on strap and with a trademark double C, trademark improvement. One counterfeit Vuitton, I have no idea how to say that word in French, in English, black calfskin steamer handle bag marked with an illegitimate serial number. They're faking the serial numbers. One counterfeit Vuitton monogram canvas with gold hardware. One counterfeit Vuitton PVC monogram backpack. One counterfeit Bulgari ring, round signet ring, two-tone, size six. One counterfeit Bulgari round signet ring, size five. One counterfeit Chanel crystal logo necklace with illegible Chanel oval mark. Two counterfeit Cartier hinged bangles. I didn't see any of the real Cartier. One counterfeit Cartier crystal pave hinge cuff. One counterfeit Tiffany & Co. gold tone hinge cuff. Two counterfeit Vuitton hinge cuffs. One set with Pave Mother of Pearls. The other with Crystal Pave stamped Louis Vuitton. Two counterfeit Chanel hinged bangle bracelets. One counterfeit Chanel gold tone cuff bracelet. One counterfeit Chanel black reason crystal cuff. One counterfeit Chanel black reason crystal cuff. Uh, and then they're showing all the trademarking stamps. One counterfeit Chanel black leather charm bracelet, one counterfeit Vuitton hinge bracelet, one counterfeit Vuitton hinge bracelet, gold. One counterfeit Chanel hinge bracelet, gold. One counterfeit Dior gold tone hinge bracelet, one counterfeit Vuitton hinge monogram bracelet, one counterfeit Gucci lion head double G drop clip back earrings, Bulgari circle drop earrings, gold tone set with crystal pave stamped. And then they noted that the stamp for Bulgari, B-U-L-G-A-R-I, is spelled Bulgari B-V. L-G-A-R-I, so that the stamping is spelled wrong, which is just ridiculous and hilarious to me. Another counterfeit Chanel faux pearl gold two-tone earring, counterfeit Gucci double G drop earrings, counterfeit Chanel faux pearl earrings, counterfeit Chanel drop earrings, counterfeit Vuitton choker necklace, counterfeit uh, Chanel pearls, counterfeit Cartier bangles, counterfeit Hermes bangles, one, two, three, three of those. And then one, two, three, four, four more Chanel bangles, a Cartier bangle, more Vuitton bangles, more Cartier bangles. We're not done yet. There are four more counterfeit Chanel jewelry items, a Dior. And then finally, the final one single counterfeit Chanel faux pearl and black plastic earring, gold tone stamped with illegible Chanel oval mark. The one earring. The one single earring. They pulled one sad Chanel faux black and plastic back gold tone earring stamped with a sad Chanel oval mark. So 
of all of all of this, a lot of what the government took was counterfeit. So the government is not getting getting their money's worth on the forfeiture, which is wild. The government's motion goes on to say, whereas on July 11th, the court entered a consent preliminary order for forfeiture money judgment, which imposed joint and several money judgment against defendant in the amount of $6.5 million. So if this doesn't cover it, they're going to go after her for more money. It is wild how much stuff there is here and wild how much counter stuff there is, counterfeit stuff there is here, because counterfeit stuff is not legal. It's just absolutely wild. So that is the forfeiture Jen Shaw of it all it, with nary a Chanel bag um, to her name. And again, I don't care if you own a Chanel bag or not. It's the the pattern that we're seeing in the lavish lifestyle. And then when you pull back the curtain, it's like, but is it though? But is it though? And with that, we need to go look at the sentencing memo for a little bit about what Jen Shaw's attorneys say about her. What I will note is that this sentencing memorandum is 345 pages with all the submissions. Uh, we will go over some of it. We are not going to go over every single page of it. We will be here literally forever. And I wanted to read through all the property because I was fascinated by the purses. Let's just be honest. That's what it is. But this is written by Jen's attorneys to engender sympathy from the judge, to make the judge understand who Jen Shaw is, how she ended up mixed up in all of this. And in the sentencing memo, the attorneys talk about two Jen Shaws. Jen Shaw writes a letter, Coach Shaw writes a letter, and others. There are so many redactions in this, it's mind-boggling to me. Half of Jen Shaw's statement is redacted. There are numerous letters submitted on her behalf that are redacted in their entirety. There are large chunks of this motion that are just blacked out from public view. I don't know what they're talking about, but whatever they're talking about, they don't want it in public view. Everyone does have a right to privacy, but it's curious to me as to what there could be in a sentencing memorandum outside of health issues that really are that private. And we've seen Jen Shaw talk about some of the darkest struggles people can go through on this season of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, which filmed well before this was written. So I'm not sure what else there is to keep behind the curtain, but I'm also, while I'm noting that it's unusual, I'm also trying not to pass judgment on it because at this point, Jen Shaw is facing, well, the government's asking in their in their plea agreement between 11 and 14 years of federal prison. It's just odd to me. Um, the name, the first name of her youngest son is redacted out of all of this. Yet we see her posting about him by name on social media and in the show. So some of those things feel inconsistent to me. I'm sure there's a reason behind it. I just don't know what it is at the moment. So let's take a look at this sentencing memoranda. I mean, even stuff in the table of contents is redacted. So let's just, let's just jump, let's jump into this extensive, extensive sentencing memorandum. Preliminary statement. The court is faced with deciding the appropriate sentence for Jennifer Shaw, who has pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud in relation to a long-lasting telemarketing scheme in which victims, many of them elderly, lost money buying worthless services from companies in which Ms. Shaw was involved. Already downplaying it from the sentencing where the government says she owned one of those sales floors, but that is their job as attorneys. And I will say, when we look at this, like, 
vis-a-vis the sentencing memo from um, and the letters from Elizabeth Holmes, this comes across for me as much more grounded. It's not, she lost her stocks. She's already been punished. This sentencing memo, I think, seeks to do what sentencing memos should do, which is explaining as much as they can the defendant and humanizing the defendant to the court versus saying, but your honor, she's already been punished. She lost her stocks, which all of us were like, cry me a fucking river. Shut up, Elizabeth Holmes. We just don't. You lost your stocks. People lost so much. This sentencing memo doesn't come across that way to me. It focuses more on Jen Shaw and the co-conspirators than saying, but she's already been punished enough. And I appreciate that in this sentencing memo, truly. So it starts out with acknowledging the crime and not distancing from it and acknowledging what happened while maybe distancing a little and saying she was involved, not that she owned the companies. It goes on to say there were many, many people involved in perpetrating this fraud, FAIR, which operated openly and as part of an industry operating with a fine line between what is legal and illegal. Many businesses conducted legitimate and legal businesses. Ms. Shaw was involved in both the legitimate and fraudulent sides of this industry, this industry being telemarketing. At least, look, I appreciate the acknowledgement. Come right out with it, Your Honor. She participated in both sides. Some of the defendants in this extensive government investigation have been sentenced to probation or extremely short sentences, while others have received sentences of up to 87 months. Those sentences have been based, as is always the situation, on the defendant's role in the offense, whether they went to trial, pled guilty, cooperated, as well as the defendant's background. Ms. Shaw is not like the other people involved in this vast conspiracy. She is different from them in many ways that are obvious, such as religion, race, gender, and cultural background, and in other ways more nuanced and equally important. First, most of her co-defendants are essentially career criminal, uh, career con men, people who've spent their lives hopping from scheme to scheme, professional fraudsters without an honest dollar to their names, men who outran the FTC over and over again to erect another fly-by-night sales floor and grab cash before getting shut down. Jen bears no resemblance to these men. Before she committed these acts, Miss Shaw's entire life for more than four decades was marked by hard, honest work, respectable achievement, and hard-earned reputation for true generosity. Look. It's an interesting, like, she's not like those other fraudsters. But that's why I read the sentencing hearing before we got into this. Because what the government said is she owned a sales floor, she was directing people, and she was as deeply involved from 2012 all the way up. She knew of the FTC investigations, the government alleges. She knew of the FTC investigations and changed her tactics after those investigations and was running right along with them from 2012. So the four decades of hard, honest work, it is what it is. Then there's a bunch redacted, and it said this, along with other reasons set forth below, should be the basis for this court to vary downward from the sentences imposed on the other defendants in this case. Your Honor, give her less time. They say, though Ms. Shaw admittedly played an important role in the particular fraud in which she was involved, she was only one of many people involved and not involved in all facets of the conspiracy, never communicated with any of the victims, and she clearly did not invent this particular fraud, nor was she a mastermind. Ms. Shaw originally started to work in telemarketing on the legitimate legal side of the business 
and was slowly drawn into working with a group of men who were committing fraud. These men recognized in Ms. Shaw a talent for organization, hard work, and relationship building, and they took advantage of her skills to further their own criminal ends. At a certain point, Ms. Shaw became an active and knowledgeable participant, which her guilty plea and profound remorse reflect. They pulled her in. Then goes on, and then well before her arrest, Jen Shaw left the telemarketing business, launched her own, I will pronounce the the word for self-named wrong all the time, epimoniously (laughs) named fashion and beauty lines, and became a reality TV star. Jen Shaw indubitably proved to this court and her former co-conspirators that she permanently broke from the shadowy world of telemarketing fraud when she reinvented herself completely as a glamorous real housewife of Salt Lake City. In fact, for the past three years, Jen put her entire life under the blinding spotlight and scrutiny of video cameras appearing on her hit reality television franchise that permanently changed the course of her life and made her a household name. She's not like other fraudsters, Your Honor. She's a real housewife. In a perfect homage to reality television, which is in actuality, a semi-scripted, heavily edited facsimile of quote-unquote reality intentionally manipulated to maximize ratings, episodes of The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City have been filmed and aired during the pendency of Ms. Shaw's case. They took an entire like beginning of a paragraph to dig at reality TV. Reality TV is a reality, Your Honor. It's a semi-scripted, heavily edited facsimile of reality. It's not even, it's not real. Real Housewives of Salt Lake City has been filmed and aired during the pendency of Ms. Shaw's case, which misleadingly suggests that Ms. Shaw's statements and actions in these episodes match the posture of Ms. Shaw's case or reflect her accurate sentiments on the matter. Your Honor, don't watch her decrying her innocence season after season. Don't watch her yeeting shoes off of a yacht. Don't watch what she says on the show. Just that's not real. And then it goes on to talk about the editing. Worse, due to editing, scripting, and the network's complete control over the quote-unquote storyline of the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, as her sentencing date approaches, Miss Shaw has been made to seem intransigent, defiant, and often even unrepentant about her actions here. Bravo, Your Honor. Bravo, bravo, fucking bravo, Your Honor. Bravo, bravo, fucking bravo. They did it, not her. She is not intransigent, defiant, or unrepentant. That's just storyline editing. It goes on to say nothing could be further from the truth. Just as Jen Shaw has never been a quote-unquote housewife, little else is real about her persona and caricature as portrayed by the editors of Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. The effigy of Jen Shaw portrayed in the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City has no bearing on who she is whatsoever and should not enter this court's calculus in fashioning an appropriate sentence for the real Jen Shaw. Look, her attorneys have done the thing. The shade to Bravo, they use um, language that really indicates that Jen Shaw is being held out and manipulated. They call it a caricature and an effigy and just blame it on Bravo, which is strong language in a sentencing memo. But this 
is their job. Is this sentencing memo the reason she didn't go to the reunion? What do you think? Is the sentencing memo why she didn't go to the reunion? Or is it because of the previous filing about the fake Chanel? What do you think? What do you think? Because this talks about all the things. The sentencing hearing talks about all the things. It's public record, all the things. So why not go to the reunion? They go on to say, what is truly remarkable about this case is that the Miss Shaw who committed this crime and the Jen Shaw her family and friends know are literally two different people. We have three Jen Shaws, y'all. This is not the Chewbacca defense. This is a Jekyll and Hyde defense, kind of. This is like a, a, I don't know. This is a thruple defense. It's not Jen Shaw Salt Lake City Jen Shaw. And it's not Jen Shaw on reality TV Jen Shaw. This is like a New York Jen Shaw. And they are literally two different people. That's not how the word literally works, but I get it. It is as if the Jen Shaw who spent time in New York with a group of deadbeat criminals and fraudsters and the Jen Shaw who was the devoted mother, daughter, sister, wife, and friend in Salt Lake City are two people with little in common. Yes, I am reading directly from the defense's submission. And yes, it says the Jen Shaw who spent time in New York with a group of deadbeat criminals and fraudsters is not the same as the mother that lived in Salt Lake City. At least they didn't accuse her of fucking half in New York. And if you haven't watched Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Let let me know if you have no idea what I'm talking about. It, It came up. It came up. As reflected in the more than 25 letters written to this court by her friends, family, and colleagues, Jen Shaw is an incredibly generous, loving, and caring person who has devoted herself selflessly to all her extended family and to many friends in need of support and help. What is astounding about these letters from people who have known Jen Shaw their whole lives to those who have just met her a few years ago is the constant portrait of a woman who gives of herself to others, particularly those in need, either because of physical or mental disabilities or because they are marginalized due to race or sexual orientation. How then to reconcile these two parts of the same person and determine the appropriate punishment for a person who committed a serious crime and hurt many innocent victims, yet at the same time has helped so many people? A woman who has acknowledged her guilt and expressed remorse and certainly will not commit further crimes, but will rather continue to devote her life to helping others. Redacted. So she's literally two different people. She doesn't even know that person. She's super remorseful. Redacted. In addition, Ms. Shaw's failure to plead guilty early in the investigation is not a reflection of her lack of remorse. Rather, it reflects the enormous shame and guilt she feels and the difficulty she has endured in admitting to all those who love and admire her that she had committed this crime. Your Honor, she was embarrassed and ashamed of her actions and the difficulty she endured in telling those she loved that she did it is why she didn't plead sooner. Jen Shaw waited until literally the eve of trial to plead. However, Ms. Shaw has now been able to face her actions, admit her guilt, and begin the process of healing herself, her family, and most importantly, for the victims of this fraud. I don't know if the victims care about Jen Shaw's healing, but we'll go on. On January 6, 2023, this court will make the biggest decision in the life of Jen Shaw her husband, her children, and her very large and loving extended family. 
Defendant Jen Shaw comes before this court having pled guilty to a single count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud arising from her involvement in a telemarketing scheme. It says fraudulent telemarketing scheme, a mistake that has not only ruined her own life. It's the only sentence that's been wordy so far. A mistake that has not only ruined her own life, but has broken her heart as she has watched the damage that her actions have caused to the family that she loves so dearly. So dearly. At least it continues to focus on her actions. Yes, there are times. Yes, there are times it's a distancing. It's a sentencing memo begging for the mercy of the court. But it also has moments where it is actually taking some responsibility, not exactly what we saw in this season of Real Housewives, but her attorneys are saying, look, she is ashamed. She is embarrassed. She is mortified. She couldn't admit guilt sooner because of the shame that she felt. And then they go on to explain her background and why that shame was such a big deal. So at least, at least it is strong and grounded. This is a grounded sentencing memo. Hey, we know that, that we know that we fucked up, but there's a reason for the shame. There's a reason for the weight. And there's a reason she got pulled in with this bad group of fraudsters. She's not a career criminal. In fact, she's a loving human that cares about her family. They care about her. So keep that in mind. It's a solid argument. We ask your honor to impose a sentence of 36 months imprisonment. Look, a grounded argument. They're not coming in here with some Elizabeth Holmes bullshit. And I don't know the extent of the fraud here. But these are financial crimes different than Elizabeth Holmes's crimes, though they were both wire fraud. At times, Elizabeth Holmes put people's lives in danger in a different way based on medical testing, different than financial crimes that are damaging to people but are not as risky to personal safety. Elizabeth Holmes's sentencing memo asked with a straight fucking face that she'd be allowed to continue her work from home. This sentencing memo is very grounded in, look, we know there's going to be some prison time, but we're asking not for 11 years, but for three. It's a much more grounded ask, and I appreciate that. And then they say that that sentence is not greater than necessary to achieve the goals of punishment and takes into account Jen Shaw's history and characteristics. Then it gets into the personal history and characteristics. This is extensive we are going to go through some of it, but this is Jen Shaw's life. Um, and when I read through this the first time, I wish we saw more of this on Real Housewives. Truly, I wish we knew more of this on Real Housewives and we didn't get a ton of it. The heading of this section about Jen Shaw's personal history and characteristics has a footnote saying we rely on the pre-sentence investigation report. Excellent description of Ms. Shaw's background and up uh, background and supplement it here. So, hey, the PSR did a good job supplementing her background. Here is more. Shaw comes from an unusual background that placed great demands on her at a young age and throughout her life. It says her father, Sion, was an immigrant from the impoverished Tongan island of Tanagatu. I hope I pronounced that right. I probably didn't, but I did try to. Tanagatu, I hope. Her mother, Charlene, also of Polynesian descent, was from Hawaii. Her father emigrated to the United States and settled in Hawaii, where he hoped to further his education. Education. He eventually attended Brigham Young University in Provo, where he met Jen's mother. 
It says, although Christian by birth, they both converted to Mormonism and Jen was born while both parents were still in college. Jen Shaw was born in 1973 in Provo, Utah. The combination of the immigrant and Polynesian cultures had a profound impact on Ms. Shaw. First, as is custom in Polynesian culture, the firstborn is commonly raised by her grandparents. So when Jen was only one month old, her maternal grandparents took her to Hawaii to raise her. I didn't know any of this. I would love to hear more about this in Real Housewives. Truly, more than the women, um, more than the women fighting with each other. I'm I'm interested in her background. So when Jen was one month old, she went to Hawaii, and this let Jen's parents continue their educations unburdened by a small child. Jen lived with her grandparents and aunts in Hawaii until she was five. She was raised as an adored princess in an environment where everyone looked like her and showered her with attention. But then her grandmother became ill, and Jen was suddenly returned to Utah to live with her parents. This was a very traumatic experience for Jen, as her grandparents and aunts were the only real parents she knew at the time. Second, in Polynesian culture, the oldest daughter is called a faha. Fahu, faha, fahu. I think it's fahu, F-A-H-U. Um, Jen talked about this on the show. She talked about um, being the eldest daughter and about the role that that comes with. Again, things I would like to have heard about more. Um, and it talks about that role as the eldest daughter has extraordinary family responsibilities to her siblings and parents, what we in Western culture more commonly consider the responsibilities of a mother. By the time Ms. Shaw began living with her own parents, they had more children. Shaw eventually became the eldest of six. When she was plucked from Hawaii, where she had been the pampered baby in the family, she suddenly became the eldest child in Salt Lake City, living in a strict home with near strangers. Compounding the trauma to five-year-old Jen, ripped from her beloved grandparents without warning, in Salt Lake City, Utah, people of color were not common. Jen was deeply affected by the ridicule she had to endure from classmates because her physical appearance, appearance differed from the predominantly Caucasian community in Utah. As noted in the PSR, Jen relayed one incident in which her classmates asked her why her skin was dirty, and she thereafter scrubbed it until it was raw. In her parents' home, Jen grew up with a very strict environment. Her parents eventually had six children. They both worked and pursued their education. Jen was the oldest of six, and as described by her mother, quote, one of the most revered Tongan cultural traditions identifies the eldest female sibling as the Fahu. As the Fahu, Jen is accorded the highest respect at all formal and informal occasions, from funerals to weddings and births. She acts as the family matriarch and oversees her siblings, nieces, and nephews. This feels like a lot of responsibility to place on kids. Just saying. Thus, Jen holds the position of being the caretaker who is responsible for the family. She has lived this esteemed role and accepts the responsibility and has exemplified this role throughout her life. Jen's parents demanded and expected their children to respect Tongan cultural traditions while fulfilling the immigrant version of attaining a good education and the American dream. From Jen, they demanded only one thing, be perfect. Jen excelled even as an elementary school student, being chosen the outstanding student in sixth grade and elected student body president in ninth grade, uh, footnote four. And then they've got the letters of her family backing this up. Here's the thing, though. Um, literally, I don't remember any of this part of my life. I don't know if I could go back and detail all of this for someone. It would take work. I think it would actually probably take interviewing my family members, too, because I don't remember. 
um, which is why they keep citing two exhibits being the letters from her family. She was a cheerleader and dancer throughout high school. She saw herself as a role model for her younger siblings, forging a path for them through the intricacies of being a Polynesian immigrant family in Orm, Utah, surrounded by Caucasian Mormons. Jen's brothers, Kalo, who was one and a half years younger than Jen, writes, quote, she paved the way for me to not be behind the curve when it came to athletics, social clubs, and academics. Jen's parents were also very hardworking, civically minded, and accomplished. Her father worked as a track manager. And then they talk about her jobs, her parents' jobs, and the roles her parents have played, the fact that her mom is um, on the board of directors at a Polynesian community in Utah, the name of which is redacted, that her mom's accomplished and lists through what her mom has done in the education field. And then it says, ordinarily, the accomplishments of a defendant's parents and siblings may not be very relevant. I was wondering why it was in here too. However, in this case, family background is very important. Jen grew up as an outsider in a hostile and strange environment. At the same time, she was the Fahu and had the responsibility not only for caring for her brothers and sisters at home, but for forging a path for them in a place that did not welcome strange children of color. Meanwhile, her family clearly expected and demanded high level of educational and professional achievement. It was from this pressure cooker that Jen entered her adult life, and it had a profound impact on the course of her life and her conduct in this case. It feels like what they're saying to me is she was so pressured to be perfect that it led her down this path to achieve at all costs. That seems like the way that they are going um, to argue this. Look, it's this pressure that you can't understand, Your Honor. It's this pressure that she was dealing with that led her down this way. But this is what a defense brief is for. It's to um, tell the court who this person is as a full person and maybe explain why they behaved the way that they did. This is the exact point of a sentencing memo, and I think that they are doing it, um, hoping that the court will, will be moved by it, and they do it in, a, again, a grounded way. Jen dropped out of University of Utah so she could support her husband and newborn son. It talks about her and Sharif. They dated for two years. They fell in love, um, and Sharif said, it was not a match made in heaven. My wife's parents did not like me because I played football. And I was not Polynesian or Mormon, but rather an African-American Muslim from the dirty streets of Los Angeles. Footnote 11, Exhibit A3, letter from Sharif Shaw. While they were dating, Jen became pregnant with their first son, which broke nearly every rule in the family. This led to a break with her father, who disowned Jen. This was very painful for the family, especially Jen, who wanted nothing more than her father's affirmation, approval, and love. However, due to the conversations during this period, Jen discovered for the first time that Mormons did not formally accept African-Americans as converts. The target of lifelong racism herself, Jen was devoted to learn, Jen was devastated, pardon, Jen was devastated to learn that her faith and family had such strong racist views towards others. She found resolve and stood her ground. Jen refused to break up with Sharif or end her pregnancy, despite her father's harsh disapproval and request. After their son, Sharif Jr. was born, Jen and Sharif married, def uh, defenseless in the innocent face of this, his adorable grandson, Jen's father thawed towards Jen and her parents, she and her parents reconciled. In fact, Jen became increasingly close with her father, who was devoted to his grandchildren, footnote 12. 
Jen eventually abandoned Mormonism and converted to Islam, a new wife and mother. While still a sophomore in college, Jen attempted to continue her education and pursue academic ambitions. It then goes through trying to figure out how to drop out of school. So Jen goes through what she was trying to do in school, disappointing her parents that she was dropping out of school, and what a difficult time that was for her and Sharif as they decided that Sharif would focus on his education and she would drop out. From the time Jen dropped out of school until the president said she had worked hard and continuously to support her family, her jobs have included United Auto Credit Corporation, Franklin Covey, Professional Education Institute, and Prosper, Inc. It then goes on to say in 2009, she began to work in the telemarketing industry. It should be noted that when Ms. Shaw began to work in telemarketing for many years, she was engaged in legitimate business. I mean, 2009, 10, 11, 12. I mean, this scheme started in 2012. She acknowledged it started in 2012. I don't know if three years is for many years when the scheme is alleged to have been from 2012 to 2021, but that feels longer than three years. It goes on to say there is no indication that she sought out being involved in a business that was rife with fraud, and there is no reason to believe she would have sought out illegal activity if it had not presented itself to her. A lot of people say that, though. A lot of crimes are crimes of opportunity. They're not looking for it, but things happen. Since converting to Islam almost 25 years ago, Jen has steadfastly followed her faith in the raising of her family. Jen simultaneously shouldered all the responsibilities of a faha, fahu, um, in a large Polynesian family. As will now be, as will be explained below, the cultural roles both placed upon her by birth and those assumed by her as a Muslim wife and mother have resulted in a life devoted to the well-being of her family and friends and to a life filled with the burdens of a woman who is responsible for the well-being of many others. It talks about her being a devoted mother and family member and has provided emotional and physical support and help to many people in her life. It talks about her two sons. The letters submitted by them demonstrate that she's a devoted mother to them. It goes on to talk about her being a devoted and loving mother. Once Jen traded her academic and career ambitions for motherhood, she transferred her natural strong work ethic to being an exceptional working mother. Hoping to have a big family like the one she grew up in, Jen and Sharif tried for years to give Sharif Jr. a younger, and then it is redacted. Um, I imagine that is about loss because after the redaction, it says, and despite this solitary, painful struggle, Jen has been extremely involved in the lives of her sons and her husband, Noted in his letter, Jen instilled on her sons the importance of education and encouraged them to strive to do their absolute best. From the time they were in elementary school through high school, Jen helped her sons prepare for spelling bees, science fairs, debate tournaments, and public speaking competitions. She was a parent to her kids. It then goes on to talk about her oldest heading off to Duke Medical School and stated that his parents, well, Jen and Sharif, were recently able to attend his white coat ceremony while she was pending sentencing. Isn't that kind of the court? It goes on to talk about her younger son and the arrest that, or the the raid of her home, which we heard about a little bit during the uh, filming of the show. It says in the sentencing memo, when the police came to arrest Jen in the instant case, the agents found 15-year-old, and then they've redacted her youngest son's name, in bed and pointed an assault rifle at his head and heart. Uh, her youngest son was forced out of bed at gunpoint and escorted out of the home in handcuffs. 
He still is having nightmares from this incident, and it is only his mother who is able to calm him and help him back to sleep. This is part of the tremendous guilt and shame Jen feels as her actions have harmed her family in many ways. I appreciate that they circled it back to her involvement when they're talking about what her son went through. They talk about Jen helping extended family member and list the family members that she has helped and how she has helped, talking about the letters and what the letters talk about and how she has been a constant support for her family. It goes on to talk about her life with Sharif a little bit and answer some questions that I actually didn't know. As previously stated, Jen dropped out of college so that her husband could complete his education and go to law school. For the next 20 years, from the early 90s, Jen worked extremely hard both inside and outside the home to raise her sons and support her family. From 2002 to 2012, Sharif practiced law as a litigator for the largest commercial firm in Utah. He worked every day, including weekends. In February 2012, Jen and Sharif decided it would be better for him to switch professions so he would have more time with the family. And so he took a job as a football coach with the University of Utah. I'm wondering if that is why we see this fraud alleged back to 2012. I'm wondering if there was a pay decrease and that they did not want to, as a family, go through a lifestyle decrease because this fraud is alleged from 2012 through to when she was indicted in 2021. And they're saying Sharif stepped down as a practicing attorney to become a football coach in 2012. I think that there are things that are not a coincidence, and I wonder if this is one of them. It goes on to say, ultimately, rather than freeing up time, the job with the football team consumed even more time as Sharif was constantly traveling the country to recruit athletes. Jen was left to raise the family while working and felt more and more alone. As Jen wrote to, as Jen wrote of Sharif's life as a football coach, quote, he flourished as a football coach. Many of his players began to gain the father they never had. And then it's redacted. Why is it redacted? And then it talks about as a further emotional blow occurred in January 2018 when Jen's grandmother died. Jen had been raised by her grandmother. She was devastated by her death. And then it talks about how nine months later in September 2018, her father died unexpectedly. But these are 2018. This goes back to 2012. As Jen describes it, my entire world came crashing down. My father was my entire world. He was the one place I could seek stability and feel safe. And then things are redacted. Her exercising increasingly poor judgment about the people with whom she was involved in the telemarketing business and the business practices in which she is engaged. It's awkward because half the sentence is redacted and then everything after this is redacted. So her grandmother dies, her father dies, and she's exercising increasingly poor judgment, okay? And then it's redacted and redacted and redacted and redacted. How did Ms. Shaw, an otherwise law-abiding and model citizen, get involved in this crime? Tell me, I'd like to know. The portrait of Miss Shaw that emerges from the history of her family and the descriptions of her character by her family and friends make it hard to understand why she now stands before this court having pled guilty to a serious and longstanding fraud that victimized many innocent persons. This is good writing. This is the question the court wants to know. This is the question we want to know. Her attorneys have done a good job in telling the story. I would like to hear it more because it's redacted, but. This tells the court, 
How is this person that you've heard so much about, their upbringing, their dedication to family, how did they end up in this place? The answer to this question can be found in understanding both Jen's past and upbringing, which has been outlined above, redacted. The short answer is there were two Jen Shaws. One was the perfect daughter, mother and wife in Salt Lake City. The other was the other Jen Shaw, redacted. New York Jen Shaw. This Jen Shaw, we're going to call her New York Jen Shaw. This Jen Shaw threw caution and morals to the wind as she spent more and more personal and professional time with a group of unsavory fraudsters while living in New York, a world separated both geographically and emotionally from her life in Salt Lake City. Well, was she living in New York with her kids? Were her kids in Salt Lake City with her husband? How was she living in New York? I have so many questions about this, about the living in New York bit of all of this. Did they separate for a while? Is that what's redacted? I don't know. But anyway, New York Jen Shaw threw caution and morals to the wind and spent more and more time with a group of unsavory fraudsters. There is no fine line that can be drawn between these two people and places, but the demarcation is significant. At the outset, it must be emphasized that when Jen originally began to work in the telemarketing industry, she was involved in a legitimate business. This is not a person who sought out illegal activity from the beginning, like a drug dealer. That's what it says. I'm reading the sentencing memo. It says, this is not a person who sought out illegal activity from the beginning, like a drug dealer. Look, I would hasten to add that many who get into dealing drugs do so due to circumstances of pressure and financial gain, of financial pressure. But, you know, okay. I think a lot of their sentencing memos would say, I didn't seek this out, and then all this other shit happened, and here we were. Going on, it is more a story of a person who gradually over time got sucked into fraudulent activity and then became slowly more involved. Mm. It goes on to say Jen's entire life was also spent in social environments that were very strict and clearly defined roles for women, first as the Fahu in the Tongan family and then the wife and mother in a Muslim family. When Jen did go to University of Utah, she dropped out to support her husband's career. Jen was extremely ashamed for failing to finish university and felt it was a great disappointment to her parents. Redacted. Therefore, her marriage and her husband's career became everything to her. Redacted. Jen's life in New York was totally removed from Utah, so she felt freed from the structures of her usual life. Structures of her usual life. Also in New York, Jen was in a place where people of color were not unusual. For the first time, Jen could walk down the street and see people viewed her as beautiful, powerful, and successful. This added to her desire to be accepted and integrated into the life of these New York men. Moreover, the lifestyle in New York, dominated neither by religious Mormons nor strict Muslims, is redacted. This offense conduct is the direct opposite of who Ms. Shaw has been during most of her life and the person she is to her friends and family. Ms. Shaw clearly acknowledged her guilt and is very remorseful for the hurt and damage she has caused innocent victims. They do keep grounding it back in the damage done, even while offering explanations, which is their job. Yet, pleading guilty and acknowledging her guilt before her family, her friends, and all the world has been extremely difficult. Jen has always felt she must be perfect, the perfect daughter and family member, the perfect wife. The shame she feels from this offense is quite literally unbearable. And although she knows she committed a serious crime that hurt many people, it is psychologically extremely difficult for her to face friends and family. 
Thus, while she sometimes seems to be denying guilt in public, in private, redacted, for more than 40 years, Ms. Shaw has been a productive, valuable member of society, and she is fully capable of being an asset to society once again. And then it lists the guidelines calculations, which they've already kind of fixed in the plea deal. So the guidelines calculations are less interesting to me. And then it goes through asking the court how to balance those and how they're coming out to this evaluation. It also talks about the fact that even though the government listed her as a tier A participant, as a top level of culpability participant, that they disagree that she is not one of the most culpable. They say that the an extended period of incarceration would be a burden to her family in the middle of a global pandemic. And then it talks about some cases where people were sentenced to less time because of the pandemic. It says, while Jen's family circumstances do not rise to the standard of extraordinary as is traditionally understood, the court can consider them nonetheless in varying from the guidelines. There can be no doubt that Jen's prolonged absence will impose an enormous burden on her husband and children. Her younger son will graduate from high school without his beloved mother in the audience cheering him on. He will pack his belongings and move into his first college dorm without Jen's doting motherly help or her famously two large baskets of his home-cooked favorite. Her her older son will walk across the stage at Duke Medical School to be hooded as a doctor and see the empty seat in the audience where Jen should have been but for her mistakes, rather than stand in the center of an enormous group of Tongan and Black relatives singing their blessings on the young daughter, on, sorry, on the young doctor, Jen will only hear about this day from a federal prison. So these are the things that she says she is losing. The judge that sends the Chrisleys heard similar arguments about the family and said, unfortunately, this is due to your own actions. So yes, these are difficult things. But the court in the Chrisley case, and might say in this case as well, yes, however, there are consequences to your actions. And as a consequence, you are going to miss these things. As Jen's husband, who has heard Jen's cheer in the crowds, of the University of Utah football games, giving him courage and love for every play and game in the last decade will be deafened by the silence in her absence. It's dramatic. Look, it's dramatic writing. It's a sentencing memo, but it is, it is, it is thematic writing at this point. After spending nearly 30 years with his wife behind him and at his side, Coach Shaw will, for the first time, be alone in his home on the field and in his heart. Jen understands that she is the reason these three men will suffer, and her own suffering is exponential for it. We submit that a sentence of 36 months would mitigate the risk to her family while satisfying the requirements of the sentencing guidelines. And then it talks about um, the pandemic and risk of being in prison during the pandemic. It talks about restitution being paid and that she can't pay it if she is incarcerated. She needs to be working, and she's eager to make the victims whole through restitution and can't do that if she's not working. Due to her celebrity status, it says, which she has used to significantly advance the rights of marginalized and disenfranchised communities, Jen is uniquely positioned to benefit society. From a young age, Jen took on the role of oldest daughter, the responsibility of being a role model. That directive has become her personal mission, and the moment Jen got the spotlight of the world stage on her, she redirected that light on to those who have been left in the dark for their race, religion, sexual orientation, or beliefs. 
often the only voice speaking out for the rights of disenfranchised Utahns, Jen has earned a place as a champion for the marginalized. Her fans and followers look to Jen to speak out for them, defend them, and encourage them to swim harder when the tides of injustice pull them under. Jen has been extremely active in a number of social justice organizations, footnote 100, which is redacted. Yes, the footnote's redacted. The primary focus of her volunteer work has been to combat racism, raise awareness of the mental health challenges of the LGBTQIA community, and combat discrimination against that community, and support a woman's right to reproductive freedom. Since pleading guilty, Jen has spent the majority of her time trying to help and give back to the community through the following organizations, which are redacted, and it talks about the organizations she spends time with and how she gives back and brings awareness. And then talks about, um, goes on to say, Jen is a Polynesian Muslim Mormon woman. She uniquely represents each and all of these groups. And for many of them, she is their only spokesperson. Jen will now have the opportunity to teach her communities, followers, fans in the world about accepting responsibility, getting help, making amends, and atoning for one's mistakes. Her story will be powerful and watched keenly by millions who will want to see her come back having paid her debt to society so she can pay her debt to the victims here. But more than that, they want to see Jen be championed, be the champion they need, still standing up for them, fighting for them, and leading the way in a never-ending battle for equality in America. It is, it is a very, um, a very, a very poignantly written speech trying to say, look at how much good she has done, Your Honor. Look and how she is championing. The judge is going to say, um, yes, and, yes, and, yes, and. It talks about Jen benefiting society more if she is out of custody than in custody and goes through the cost. At a cost in today's dollars of approximately $44,528 per year, imprisoning Jen Shaw would cost at least $265,000 for the six-year sentence recommended by the probation department. Ah, the government tagged 11 to 14. Probation recommends six. They're asking for three. And they're saying, look, it would cost $260,000 to house her. To incarcerate Jen makes no sense at all. Jen will remain a financial burden throughout her incarceration and will have lost six years of time in which she could have been working to make payments towards restitution. Such expenditures of taxpayer money should only be reserved for the most dangerous and incorrigible offenders. Jen is neither dangerous nor incorrigible. She has demonstrated over the past two years she is law-abiding, family-oriented, and peaceful. I mean, I've watched Real Housewives. Ah, peaceful? Jen has, a bit, Jen has a bit of a flair. She does not need additional custodial sentence to deter her. Now, I agree that she is not a dangerous offender. It is in the way that the court system uses the word dangerous. These are, in fact, financial crimes. It's interesting to me that probation is acting asking for six years. So they say, we submit under these circumstances that three years serves the ends of punishment, is consistent with the efforts to reduce prison population, and especially with respect to nonviolent offenders who prove low risk for recidivism and serves the public interest. It's like, Your Honor, she has a new job. She is a mother. She is doing work for the community. And then at the end, it asks that she be incarcerated 
at the um, FPC Bryan facility in Bryan, Texas. You know who else has to be incarcerated there? Elizabeth Holmes. Wouldn't that be? That's a reality show I might watch um, is Elizabeth Holmes and Jen Shaw. But they both asked to be at the facility in Bryan, Texas. So that is Miss Shaw's sentencing memorandum there. Oh, I forgot to show you the um, I forgot to show you all of the attachments. Hold on. We'll go through the attachments. There are substantial letters, letters on behalf of Jen Shaw, photographs and a statement of Jen Shaw. I forgot to do the statement of Jen Shaw. We're going to do that real quick. And then a lot of attachments that go through um, all of the sentencing guidelines and the COVID-related things that were mentioned. In the list of letters, it is Jen's mother, brother, husband, sons, nephew, sister, cousin, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, friends, assistant, close friend, niece, friends, Jen's brother, Jen's brother, sister, friends, father-in-law, mother-in-law, submitted letters. Let's go to Jen's statement. And here we have Exhibit D, Jennifer Shaw's statement. How I got involved in the situation, question mark. I accept complete responsibility for my bad conduct, the terrible business decisions I made, and professional relationships I developed stemmed from some personal painful experiences I was going through in my life. In 2016, my life hit a serious crossroads. I appreciate that, but what about 2012? Sorry. In 2016, my life hit a serious crossroads. Redacted. As a lawyer, my husband worked horrible hours, but at least he was able to bring his work home so he could be with family. Redacted. 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 And then things got worse. I lost my grandmother in January 2018, whom I was very close with as she helped raise me. When I thought things couldn't get any worse, my entire world came crashing down when my father unexpectedly passed away on September 8th, 2018. My father was my entire world. He was the one place I could seek stability and feel safe. My grief was overwhelming. Redacted. Was making horrible professional decisions and establishing business relationships with people who were untrustworthy and had bad business reputations. So you knew they had bad reputations? I failed to thoroughly examine my own company processes. It sounds like Sam Bankman fried And the people that I worked with, this was my fault. After my father's death redacted, I decided this was it. Nothing else mattered. I was so angry at myself for spending so much time away from my father that I never physically went back to the MPG office after his death. I felt like a total failure. As a daughter, a fahu, a wife, a mother, a businesswoman, I told Stort he and Conan could handle everything and I wanted out. I wanted to focus on my fashion and beauty businesses. The coaching business was a mess and I wanted out. Oh, it was a mess. Oh, it was a mess. Hmm. About five months after my father passed, I was approached with an opportunity to do a reality TV show about women in business from Utah, which was later given the brand name or the brand recognition, Real Housewife of Salt Lake City. The main reason I wanted to do the show was because it would force me to be in Utah. I could get away from the bad associations in NYC and have a platform to launch my business and beauty business. Also, it gave me a real chance to escape the coaching business. I wanted to repair my marriage. And I'm, again, interested in some more of that. It interested in some more of that. We didn't see a lot of that on the show. But I wonder if the repair my marriage bit is part of the redacted stuff elsewhere in these motions. Um, I wanted to repair my marriage, focus on my family, and I had a lot of healing to do. I also felt it was important as the first Tongan and Muslim housewife in the franchise 
to set an example for other minority girls and women. I wish more, um, I had wished growing up that there were more female minority women in business that looked like me that I could identify with. I hope that by joining the show, I could restart my life and become someone my father and family would be proud of. I started filming season one, Real Housewife of Salt Lake City, December 3rd, 2019, and never went back to New York to the new MPG office location that Stort had secured in 2019 and 2020 while filming season ones and two, focusing on my fashion and beauty business, restructuring my fashion and beauty business to dealing with the pandemic and redacted. Also, MPG had gotten out of control which I felt totally overwhelmed and angry about. Redacted, my poor judgment and bad business associations caused innocent people to lose their money and be victimized by investing in poorly structured businesses and products that I influenced or controlled. For that, I'm genuinely sorry. That distance is a bit more, right? It's like, oh, it was poorly structured. It doesn't really say it's fraudulent. She says, for that, I am genuinely sorry. I will work the rest of my life to make it right. Interestingly, it's not signed. It's typed up, but it's not signed. So that's Jen Shaw's statement. What do you think? What do you think of her statement? Look, her attorney took a a good lesson in not just persuasive writing, but in storytelling to the judge. And that is their job, to persuasively tell the story. Whether the judge buys it or not is a whole separate thing. But will Jen Shaw feel like her attorneys represented her story well? You would think so, but the tone of Jen Shaw's letter and the way that her attorney has told her story is different and very different from what the AUSAs said at sentencing, very different from what Jen Shaw said in that sentencing transcript. I want to know what you think about this down below. We have one more episode of The Emily Show this year, and I will be away with the family for some much needed time. So if you want to keep up with what I'm doing, I will be posting in the member spaces at lawnardsunite.com and on YouTube for the channel members there. But that is where I will be. I will not be on social during my break. If you see me on social, be like, girl, I thought you were on break because I will be in our member spaces a bit. There will be one more podcast for you at the end of the year. Stay tuned for next week because I am wrapping up the cases that you are most curious about and giving a run-through of the cases we've wrapped up with. Big developments in the Depp v. Heard case, a big development in the Rust case. We've got to talk about what ever happened with Haley Page, who's now going by Chevelle. We have lots to talk about, and that will be in next week's Emily Show. So for today, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a law nerd. Thank you for getting the podcast to 2 million downloads. Don't forget to do the the things on the podcast, the 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 you know, review things where you give it stars and stuff. It it helps. And on the YouTube, do the likey, subscribe to YouTube things. But thank you for being a law nerd. It's the holidays. So may your family be well. No, I started that wrong. May your Wi-Fi be strong because it's the holidays. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May you have batteries for all of the tech you get over the holidays. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. May the odds be ever in your favor and may your holiday meals be delicious. I will talk to you in the next one. Cheers and happy holidays. 